Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Good afternoon, everyone. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that we are gathered here today on Ghana land and we would both like to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging for sharing this wonderful land with us. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Tansy Curtin. I'm the Curator of International Art pre-1980. I have my wonderful colleague here, Rebecca Evans, who's the Curator of Decorative Arts. And we're going to talk to you a little bit about this display that we've put together about um, early modernism in uh, Britain and our love and interest and lots of wonderful stories. Now, this is a sort of a newish display that Rebecca and I have put up. Uh, we, I guess for me, one of the things that I really wanted to do, I'm, I'm from Adelaide originally, I've returned here after nearly 14 years away. And one of the first things I, I said was, where are the wonderful Bloomsbury works? Why aren't they on display? Because I've always loved them. Um, always... Did you? Uh, I can acknowledge where they actually were on yes. display. I had them in my office, so um, <laughs> I have um, given them up to you all again. That's right. So I quickly whipped them off display out of Rebecca's office and put them out here. So it was one of the things that I really wanted to do was get these amazing works back out on display. I know how popular they are in terms of our audience here, but they were also really beautiful works and really important within a national and international context. So I thought I would tell you a little bit about the history of the works and how uh, the Art Gallery of South Australia came to have really one of the best collections of British modernism outside the UK. And I know some of you are guides here, so you know very well how wonderful this collection is. But interestingly, coming up, there's a wonderful new exhibition opening at Carrick Hill, which, when it relaunches, will have a really strong connection to this part of our collection as well. So, as you know, the Art Gallery of South Australia really began collecting British art to start with, and we, we do say that we have one of the best collections of British art in the world. But this part of the collection is very significant. So we're looking at early modernism in, in Britain, really from sort of late 19th century through to 1930s and 1940s. And in this section, we're really covering the two distinct groups, the Camden Town group and the Bloomsbury group, who, while quite connected, uh, they were, you know, members shared across both groups, in lots of ways had very different ideals in terms of what they were trying to achieve in their work. So when we think of the Camden Town group, we think of people like Walter Sickert, this wonderful work here, which you might recognise I've moved down from Gallery 15. It's also another beautiful Sickert over in the corner over there as well. And of course, there is a Sickert up on display in 15 too. So we do have an incredible collection of Walter Sickert's work. And Sickert, of course, established himself in Camden Town, which was at the time quite a gritty part of London, and painted some of these works that we're really looking at post-impressionism, so taking inspiration from the French artists but moving into this post-impressionist aesthetic, but also taking inspiration from the gritty and sort of underbelly of London at the time. Of course, the, one of the most famous series is that series that he did, um, like our wonderful nude up in Gallery 15, Mornington Crescent Nude, Contre Jour, which, you know, has a very strong links to that story of... Um, Jack the Ripper, which we won't go into because there are so many amazing stories to connect with these artistic groups. But I think for Rebecca and I, we were really keen to get really this story of the Bloomsbury group out. It's something that is really interesting, often overshadowed by their personal uh, relationships, but Rebecca might mention that a little later as well, but really important in terms of modernism in Britain. When we think about 
modernism and the sort of modernist aesthetic, we don't necessarily think about Britain. We think about France. We think about Paris as being the centre of modernism, the, the centre of the avant-garde and artistic expression. But I think when you see all of these incredible works together, you can really see these artists were experimenting. They were creating new works. They were experimenting with the, their form and content as well. You can, you can really say that Britain was absolutely a leader in modernism at that time. And this collection really shows that in a way that the French part of the collection doesn't necessarily, but British modernism is so beautifully illustrated in this collection. Now, the Bloomsbury Group, an incredibly important group, of course. The most famous members were Vanessa Bell and of her sister, of course, Virginia Woolf, but also Roger Fry, Augustus John, Duncan Grant. And they're all represented here in our collection and with very, very major works as well. They're an interesting group, a group of sort of, I guess, upper middle class intellectuals. Vanessa and Virginia were very well connected to their brother who was, uh, went to Cambridge. So they were, I guess they were exposed to the intellectual side of um, the British art world and the British community. And it gave them a lot of freedom to express their own artistic endeavours. Of course, Virginia Woolf became an incredible writer while Vanessa Bell became an amazing painter and artist. And you can see some of her wonderful works here. We have Mont Oliveto and also Bedroom Gordon Square, which are two fabulous works of Vanessa Bell's, alongside Augustus John as well and Roger Fry. One of the most important things that the Bloomsbury Group was associated with was, of course, the Amiga Workshops. And I'm going to hand over to Rebecca to talk a little bit about the Amiga Workshops and the history of that incredible art making. Absolutely. I think we work quite well together as curators on level two, don't we? And I think that every time one of the curators says, oh, I would like to have this work on display or this group of artists on display, then the rest of us always have a million other things that we want to put on to accompany that. And we cannot have the work of the Bloomsbury Group on display without having our remarkable collection of Amiga workshops. And of course, we can't really talk about Amiga workshops without referencing, I guess more broadly, uh, the, that introduction around our collection and our our great collection of British modernism. But of course, the precursor to the Amiga workshops is our wonderful collection of Morris and Co. and William Morris material. And I guess one of the, the bad habits of art historians is sometimes to package up periods and movements into these nice little boxes and then move from one to the other. But of course, we know that's not how the world works, or definitely not how art history works. And they merge and blend into um, one another. And Roger Fry, who was very much the head of the Amiga workshops, one of the founding directors with Duncan Grant and Vanessa Bell, he was largely inspired by William Morris and the arts and crafts movement. Probably hasn't had the same continual legacy for design and for craft across the world, but he was very much inspired by creating two things, one successful, the other not so successful. He, like Morris, wanted to create this sense of art for everyone. He wanted art to not just be on paintings and sculpture, he wanted it to be be part of every part of, of your life. And, and Morris very much had that same idea. But of course, when you make one-off pieces by artists, the price point is not achievable for all people. And I guess that's the same thing that many craftspeople today in the 21st century are also looking to, to deal with. So when you look at this collection, very much connected with the arts and crafts movement, it is a continuum of that legacy. We, we did talk 
briefly about maybe mentioning some of the complexities of the relationships between the founding members of the Amiga workshops and other members of the Bloomsbury group. But we might just focus today on the actual works of art and let you get into the juicy bits. If you've finished up your latest soap opera on Netflix, perfect. It's very complex and you might need to draw yourself a little mind map to work out who was in a relationship with who and for, ho uh, for how long. But of course, um, the Amiga workshops um, was a design company. It was started in 1913 by Roger Fry with Vanessa Bell and Duncan Grant. It was started out of the Bloomsbury Group and it sought to dissolve the false divisions and hierarchies between the decorative and fine arts, very much coming out of the arts and crafts movement. They produced murals, textiles, painted furniture and stained glass. And on display today we have this I think this is one of the works I've been trying to get out on display since I started here in 2016. And this is a Table and Chairs by Duncan Grant. I have a cabinet behind me. I'll talk in a little bit more detail. I've let Pansy talk a bit um, by Roger Fry. And then we have some ceramics here uh, by Roger Fry and also Anonymous Amiga workshops. Their workshop was located at 33 Fitzroy Square at Blooms in Bloomsbury, which I think is now the London Foot Hospital or something like that. And they commenced production in early January 1913. And Fry wrote to George Bernard Shaw in uh, the year before in 1912, and he describes the workshop that he wants to establish. He says, I am intending to start a workshop for decorative and applied art. I find that there are many young artists whose painting shows strong decorative feeling who will be glad to use their talents on applied art, art both as a means of livelihood and as an advantage to their work as painters and sculptors. There is no reason why people should not return to the more normal custom of employing contemporary artists to design their furniture and hangings, if only the artist can produce vital and original works. So the Amiga workshops, they were only in operation for a, a number of years, unlike Morris & Co, who were in operation for a good around 50 years. Uh, Amiga workshops were 1913 to 1919. Am I making that up? That's right. Yep. <laughs> um, quite short-lived in comparison to Morris, but still had quite an important impact on British decorative arts. Um, and they supplied, like Morris & Co, more modern furnishing to probably more artistically minded sections of the British community, particularly those who had means to purchase one-off pieces of furniture and decorative arts. Most of the works from the workshop were sold anonymously, which is kind of important. So moving away, although the works we have are mostly attributed to particular designers and makers, many of the works were just Amiga workshops, not particularly Duncan Grant or Vanessa Bell. Um, a high degree of finish was not a feature of the workshop style, and much of the furniture and textiles, they hold the artist's hand, so you can clearly see that the works were handmade. And if you think about the period in which they were making, in the early 20th century, the Industrial Revolution comes through in the 19th century in Britain, it changes everything. It brings mechanised weaving, it 
produces mechanised production of all these consumer goods. And you go from having mostly handmade everything to machine-made everything and a lot of consumer goods produced at a very high rate and often at very poor quality. And that's what Morris is arguing against through his um, whole company and his approach to art and craft. And again, Roger Fry is very much arguing against that. He wanted to, to produce works. I guess, you know, if you have machine-made everything, you want to see the appearance of, of the artist's hand. So a lot of the ceramics, for example, they look handmade. A lot of the... Oh, Tansy and I always joke about this. I mean, we both have young families and we think, oh my God, imagine having these in your own home. They look so fragile. <laughs> Many of the time they look not very robust and it's probably because they've been made um, in that manner. They've been made by artists who, in this case, weren't professionally furniture designers or they weren't trained to be textile designers. They were, for, I guess, for and foremost, they were, they were artists and they were painters. That'd be right. That's right. And, and I think that the one thing you said was that they, they loved, if there was a surface that could be painted, they would paint it. Yes. And you can have a look at the Charleston farmhouse where the Bloomsbury group really lived for the rest of their lives, I suppose. And every surface is literally painted. It's quite amazing. I don't think I could live with it, but it's quite an incredible, every surface is a canvas and it, you know, it's, it's such an artistic way to live. One of the things I think is really interesting about this collection is how it came about and how it's here at the Art Gallery of South Australia. And I mentioned before that connection with Carrick Hill. Well, one of, really, with this collection, they really started collecting the works, these modern British works, in the 1930s. There was a big exhibition that came over from Britain in 1935, uh, and works were starting to be acquired for the collection. Of course, they were affordable, which was important. At the time, the French Impressionist works were already unaffordable. So acquiring works for the collection that would have connection to the people of the community, but also were affordable as well. But one of the other really important connections is the connection of Ursula Haywood. Now, Ursula Haywood, of course, the wonderful owner of Carrick Hill, was a great art lover and a great lover of British modernism. And she actually brought Kenneth Clark to South Australia, of course, an incredible art historian who started, who became the representative for the Art Gallery of South Australia and started buying works on behalf of the gallery. And Carrick Hill's next, well, their opening exhibition for the launch of their wonderful new spaces is all about that notion of the collecting and taste. And some of our wonderful key works are actually going over. One of our sickets is on its way for installation over at Carrick Hill soon. And really talks about that relationship between Ursula Haywood, the art gallery, Kenneth Clark, and the notion of taste in collecting. Because, of course, at the time it was probably considered quite conservative, those works being collected. And really, probably for the last number of decades, these works might have been considered conservative. But in lots of ways, we can re-examine them now. We can look at them and see how avant-garde they actually were and how they were pushing the boundaries of everyday taste. And, um, and even if you say, look over there next to... You've got the William Orpen in the centre there similar time frame to these wonderful Bloomsbury works, a much more conservative work. So you can really see the way the Camden Town Group and also the Bloomsbury Group were really pushing that notion of the avant-garde and bringing in some of these contemporary ideas of modernism, abstraction, and particularly in uh, Vanessa Bell's work, you can see this wonderful play of abstraction and how that then connects to the decorative and applied arts and, of course, textiles as well.
I think it's interesting you bring up Ursula Haywood because she's also a bar smith. And my feeling right. is always that she's just the next generation. It's the same idea of her family collecting Morris and Co, but it's just a slightly new, uh, younger aesthetic. Mm. So it's just almost a continuum of that same family legacy. That's right, and you can see all these wonderful connections between the collection of Carrick Hill and the collection of the Art Gallery of South Australia with those Stanley Spencers, the, the Sicket, and all those wonderful works. And I think it's really nice to be able to see the way that individuals and individual taste can actually influence what is a major state collection and the way that that can really inform the future of a collection as well, at a time when perhaps other organisations weren't acquiring these works. And you can see through the legacy, if you look at the labels on all of these works, you can see that uh, acquiring legacy from the 1930s right through until the, until the present. So it's something that you start building this incredible collection and that, that continuation of that story and you can build a, a story that's unique to South Australia. And I think that's what's really interesting because we have that connection with Ursula Haywood, with Carrick Hill, but also with this wonderful legacy of Kenneth Clark and the notion of collecting. So we have some really great examples of work produced by the Amiga workshops and by this work in particular just predates the Amiga workshops. They are all particularly, well, a little bit wacky, this being very, very wacky, and we uh, have it up against the wall for safety, so uh, sadly we can't see all of the sides. Um, but this work is by Roger Fry and his wife, Helen Fry, and it dates to the very early part of the 20th century. It's around 1900, so it's a good decade before the Amiga Workshops was established in 1913. And it's called the Trevelyan Cabinet. And it's, you can kind of see how Fry was experimenting with the idea of uh, transferring the painting um, of the Bloomsbury Group into decorative arts, and it's a good precursor to the work that they eventually made in the Amiga workshops. The work was painted by Helen and Roger, and it was either a gift or a commission for the poet Robert Trevelyan. The marine imagery in the designs on the four sides of the cabinet um, form a fanciful allegory for the arms of the Trevelyan family. I was thinking, if I was to create a fanciful allegory for my own family, what grand and ridiculous imagery would I use? Could be a fun exercise. The crest, the imagined crest in this case, includes a swimming horse commemorating the legend of the first Trevelyan who swam his horse from St. Michael's Mount to the mainland of Cornwall for a wager the other knights of Arthur's court having drowned. The crest is flanked by seahorses, and Fry's panels depict a child on a swimming horse with a seahorse tail. Two side panels have a winged child seated on a mermaid, and a back panel has a child reaching land holding a goat. The panels are surrounded by shells, fishes, seahorses, and passions of waves in blue with wild caps. The top panel has a red sailing galleon, a common motif Fry would have known from uh, William de Morgan's pottery of the 1880s and 1890s, which we have a good group of works on display currently in Gallery 18. What makes the cabinet striking is its bold use of colour, uh, the simplification and flattening of the pictorial elements in the integrated use of highly decorated and repeat patterns.
In this case, Fry or the Fries have transformed a very ordinary cabinet on a stand to a modern piece of furniture inspired by Roger Fry's interests in 15th century Italian painting and uh, contemporary well, modern um, abstraction. And this was very much an experiment that led Fry to um, establish Amiga workshops in 1913. It's quite wacky. Um, I encourage you all to come have a good look at all the different motifs um, that are depicted. Well, I did want to just, we've, we've got a sort of really nice legacy here moving through these walls. And you'll notice that some of these works don't necessarily fit. We've got, of course, Francis Bacon here. But coming back to Kenneth Clark, I did want to mention the wonderful Lucian Freud here. Now, that was acquired from Lucian Freud's first exhibition, and that was found by Kenneth Clark on behalf of the Art Gallery of South Australia. And of course, if you think about Lucian Freud's work today and how significant that is, this was a very, very canny purchase for the gallery. And it shows how having those connections internationally can have such an important role for the gallery throughout history to be able to acquire major works of art, particularly at a time when we didn't have things like the internet, where we of course can connect with galleries and museums all around the world today. But in those days it was all by letter and I must say I do love trawling through all the wonderful old correspondence to actually track down some of these incredible histories as well. What you'll also notice is that we've moved the Sarah Lucas sculpture over here because I really wanted to continue that story of exploration in British art. Of course, Sarah Lucas is one of the YBAs, not so Y anymore, not so young, young British artists who were really experimenting and pushing the boundaries of British art, who were considered to be too avant-garde, too outrageous, and of course, they're so significant now. So I think it really shows you the way that you know, art in Britain has always been pushing in this way and we just need to sort of uncover and unpack some of these stories. So it's really lovely to be able to continue that legacy in here and uh, Rebecca and I, I don't think we ever finish, we keep wanting to put more things out, um, but there's lots of opportunities for us to, you know, have that chance to collaborate because of that interconnection between visual art, decorative arts, applied arts, and you know, everyday social culture as well. So we really enjoy working together on these sorts of projects to, to create that sort of meaningful engagement as well. Um, it does make us realise how our personal lives are, are quite dull and quite I know, they're very boring compared to these artists. <laughs> <laughs> and the Bloomsbury group, in particular, the Amiga workshop, you know, they were an artistic group that sat outside of normal society and their lives were completely engulfed by their artistic endeavours. We talked about the Charleston farmhouse and if you look at photographs, it's almost as if, you know, they've started here and they've looked at, oh, there's a staircase, I'll paint that and there's the rail, I'll do that too and the, you know, the ceiling needs doing and all oh, that dress could do with a pattern on it and it's just like everything that they could possibly get their hands on you know nothing is safe in any of the Amiga workshops building or their own home and this table for me is probably one of the, the best pieces yeah. <laughs> but definitely one of the highlights of the International Decorative Arts Collection it's by um, Duncan Grant and it's a classic example of the way that he worked with furniture and with decorative arts and the actual chairs and the actual table if you could even remove the decoration they're quite standard um, Gosh, that sounds like it's a rude thing to say, but I'd, you could almost buy that shaped table at any store today. Um, it is a very, you know, quite simple table, and yet he's applied this very dramatic, abstracted 
lily pond um, painted design onto the top of the table. So for this particular work, he, I think I've got this right, he poured on the paint, um, which creates these beautiful pools of color emulating a lily pond tape, a lily pond. Um, this is one of five of these tables in existence. Um, one is still at uh, Charleston Farmhouse, and we're lucky to have one here in the gallery's collection. And this and, one came from Clive Bell himself, so it, it has a wonderful, illustrious provenance. It does indeed. Um, uh, one of my favourite quotes, and I had a bit of a giggle about this, and it does give you a good idea of the way that they worked. Um, so David Garnett, who married... Um, uh, oh God, he married Vanessa Bell's daughter, daughter, Angelica. Angelica, that's right. But he had been in a relationship with Angelica's father, Duncan Grant, but previously. She didn't find out but about she didn't know about that until much later. Um, anyway, he writes in his own autobiography about the furniture at um, Charleston Farmhouse. And he says, objects which were strange in shape and low in price, which Grant and Bell quote, appeared to believe that the inherent horror of any badly designed and constructed piece of furniture could be banished forever by decoration. Doesn't matter how ugly the chair was, or how ugly the table was, they could paint it, they could make it better. And I think that's the perfect spot to end it on. If we wanted to um, have any questions, if anyone had any questions, we're happy to. Um, but we wouldn't, these are lovely, intimate works, so they really need you to get up close and have, a, not too close, close and have a look and, and really engage with them because they're not grand scale works. They're very much domestic interior works uh, and they're quite intimate and personal and it's a really lovely way to engage with both the artists and the stories of that period as well. So thank you. I feel like for the Amiga workshop and for those founding members, art was both precious but also not, and it was just an all-encompassing thing, and they could not possibly have been precious about the works that they created if, in the way that they lived with them. It, it would not have, I mean, I, don't put your coffee down on the table, but I would suggest that that would be the way they would have been uh, lived with originally. That's right. They lived with it every day, every moment of their lives, every surface was decorated. I mean, you look at this wonderful Roger Fry painting up here, you can see that the frame is hand-painted as well. And it's quite rustic and it's quite raw, but that adds to the beauty of it. And it was very much about how they would live with these objects as everyday pieces of art, which is very different from how we live with art today. And it's quite interesting to think about the way that, you know, art is a rarefied object that we place on the wall, but we don't necessarily engage with it. You all do, obviously, because you're here and you love being part of the gallery, but a lot of people don't engage with art every day. And so, obviously, that's something that we're very passionate about too. I didn't really talk about Sickett, of course, but this is a wonderful, very important piece by um, Walter Sickett. And it actually um, comes from a composite photograph of Sickett and a colleague carrying a mannequin or, a, or a, a wooden figure up a staircase. And I thought it was really beautiful to place that alongside the staircase here to kind of emulate that feel. And of course, it was also painted on the wallpaper in Sickett's studio. And it's such an incredibly dramatic piece. There's obviously another version of it as well. Um, but I think ours is incredibly special with this raising of Lazarus that in some ways, 
you know, this, this humble photograph can be turned into this incredible exploration of colour and form. But what's quite interesting is that even though there were connections between the Camden Town group and the Bloomsbury group, um, Sickett didn't have a great appreciation for the Bloomsbury group and he thought their work was a little bit derivative. So I thought it was quite fun to put his work adjacent to the Bloomsbury group and have a little play as well. Um, and I think you'll actually see that they work beautifully together. There's some really nice harmonies amongst their works too. There are quite a lot going up to Carrick Hill. I can't tell you exactly which ones. Um, Sikit La Inez is going up there, um, which is our lovely little um, portrait. Um, the Gaspar Duguay, uh, Ruskin Spear, there's a, there's a great big list of works. Really interesting and really diverse list of works. Um, actually, I'm going up to install it next week, so I'm looking forward to seeing them again. <laughs> Uh, so I don't know that we have a launch date for Carrick Hill, but it will be in the next month they'll be opening up. And um, I have had a little sneak peek and it looks fabulous. So I'm very much looking forward to going up there. What an experience going there. I know they've, um, you know, it's an amazing place and it's still, there's still a lot of research coming out about this group. And I think we've gone from really talking about the Bloomsbury group, about the male artists, to really recognising Vanessa Bell and Virginia Woolf and the contribution of these women actually holding this group together. And I think it's really interesting to see that this, you know, the, the way this is changing over time and how we can reinterpret the works. And it provides a lot of fuel for us to get excited and engaged too. So I'm very jealous of you going to Charleston Farm. Well, thank you all for coming. It is really lovely to have a group, albeit very sparsely placed, but it is really <laughs> nice to have a group of people and to be able to talk to you and share what we love about working here and this collection. So we hope to see you at our next talk, our next lunchtime talk and all the other programs that we have here at the gallery. So thank you all for coming. Thank you.